I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. On September 18th at the Rockefeller Foundation in New York City, Washington Post Live hosted a panel of conversations in its ongoing series, This is Climate, Women Leading the Charge. Women are leading the charge, but they are disproportionately affected by the impacts of climate change. I kick things off with USAID Administrator Samantha Power, who used a specific example to show how climate change has a broader impact on women than meets the eye. The norm that it is women who go collect the water in rural communities. So as water dries up near the community, women have to walk further and further. uh, And that's, of course, been a uh, terrible um, means by which or or route by which uh, women have been continually subjected to gender-based violence en route. So the further you go, the less protection you have, the more that those other norms that don't on their face seem to have that much to do with climate change per se, a norm that indicates it's okay to uh, assault or or attack a, a woman, that norm then intersects and thus you know means a disparate impact again on, on, on women in that sector as well. Let's start big picture. How and in what ways are women disproportionately impacted by climate change? Well, first, let me thank those of you who are putting on uh, this event and just say this is my 10th uh, uh, unga. It's my 10th, no, my 11th unga, 10th unga. Um, and uh, this is the first time I've been at an event like this, which is just taking head on um, a major source of many problems and a major necessity in terms of solutions. So I'd say first, women are, as all marginalized persons, all vulnerable populations tend to be disproportionately affected by climate change. We see it in um, minority communities uh, in this country over and over again. We see it all around the world uh, playing out. Um, If you look at actual casualty rates or death rates in natural, natural, natural emergencies, you see women and children bearing the brunt. Um... And you might think, oh, well, that's a biological difference, and maybe they can't outrun the uh, tidal waves or whatever, but it's as much about gender norms and be feeling like you need permission in order to know whether you can leave and being trapped in homes. Um, it's, uh, you know, in general, just actually being responsible for so much in terms of the family's welfare um, and, you know, not being in a position, uh, again, to put one's own well, welfare uh, very prominently. Um, you see it day to day, the vulnerabilities, you know, as water dries up. And, you know, I've just been to so many places, I'm sure many of you have as well, where it is just so stark, even from year to year, how different the landscapes are from the ones just 10 years ago. But one thing hasn't changed that much, which is the norm that it is women who go collect the water in rural communities. So as water dries up near the community, women have to walk further and further. uh, And that's, of course, been a uh, terrible um, means by which or or route by which uh, women have been continually subjected to gender-based violence en route. So the further you go the less protection you have, the more that those other norms that don't on their face seem to have that much to do with climate change per se, a norm that indicates it's okay to uh, assault or or attack a a woman, that norm then intersects and thus, you know, means a disparate 
impact again on, on, on women in that sector as well. So where, where in the world are these issues most acute? Well, it's hard to choose. I, I've, I'll give you just a little bit of a brief tour of my r recent horizon or whatever the backward version of a horizon is. You know, over the last year, uh, I traveled to Pakistan when a third of the country was underwater because of a combination of unprecedented rains and melting glaciers colliding at once and inadequate preparation and infrastructure. Um, and again, it's women often the last to stay uh, to protect uh, property or to protect uh, livestock as men go in search of help. I mean, everybody's um, affected in terrible ways. Traveling from there then uh, to northern Kenya and to Somalia to see five straight failed rainy seasons. So the complete opposite of what I had seen in Pakistan, which is just parched land. Um, millions of live livestock uh, died uh, of the drought uh, in the Horn of Africa. Uh, you might think, well, the main effect will be on the pastoralists, which, of course, the people who raid the, raise the the uh, the livestock. And sure, you actually saw a big spike in suicides of these men because they, for millennia, had been raising animals, and suddenly their entire herds of goats or camels wipe, wiped out just like that. Um, but when it comes to managing the effects on families and the severe acute malnutrition that young people were left with, particularly kids under five. It was women who had to both deal with despondent husbands, deal with the question of what becomes of sons who had imagined that lifestyle continuing and now had suddenly thinking, how do I possibly give them an alternative life, an alternative vocation? Um, but then also, you know, being in a position to, to try to find food for, for the youngest. So, I mean, again, it hits in different places. I was just, last one I'd offer you was just in Fiji. And of course, for all the Pacific Islands, it's, uh, or almost all of them, it's an existential threat. It's about whole nationalities having to figure out in some number of years ahead where they move to, what they do, like if they can't live in the, in the, the parts of the country and the, or in the, the particular islands that are so, uh, low, low lying, and um, just small examples with where women out there growing industry. In this instance, met with a, women, a group of women who were growing sea grapes, uh, which, are, by the way, are delicious. I'd never had sea grapes before, um, and they were so proud of their sea grapes. And you know, USAID is trying to support them, get a micro uh, loan so that they can build their business, grow their business. But just incidentally, and this is where you know climate change just comes up at every turn. They say, well, the only problem these days is we now have to take our boats further and further out because as the ocean warms, it warms particularly close to the shore. So we have to go further. So we go further to get our sea grapes. That means much longer away from all the other obligations we have as women in the household. Moreover, we use fuel-powered boats, so we're putting more emissions out into the air as we go and try to retrieve these sea grapes in order to grow our businesses. So, you know, again, every, everywhere you look, Pacific Islands, Africa, uh, Asia, you know, it's, it's walloping communities. I, and I want to get to, you mentioned microloans, and I want to get to um, the, the aid that USAID, um, USAID gives. But are these issues that you were, we were just talking about, that's a lot of the developing world, but are, is what we're talking about confined to the developing world? No, hardly. But I just happened That's to... That's called a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> we live, I mean, we're, I think, on our 23rd uh, 
natural disaster here in that that has cost over a billion dollars in the U.S. right now. Uh, we've experienced our hottest day, week, and month on record. I think just in the last couple months, um, for the first time, we had to shut down certain businesses and summer camps and uh, opportunities for young people because of wildfire smoke uh, extending. Uh, into our lives. And um, again, the disparate impacts, you know, this is a, maybe a small example, but when a kid can't go to camp, it's going to be the working mom by, in most households, certainly mine, uh, <laughs> that is going to have to figure out what, you know, it's like a, a version of what happened with COVID. Um, you know, when uh, climate hits, whether in small and fleeting ways that, that have severe health impacts and severe uh, lifestyle impacts, it is going to fall to the multitaskers uh, of the home uh, to manage that. But I mean, the, the also just the financial effects of the damage now being done on what feels like a near daily basis to some part of the United States uh, can't be overstated. It happens just not to be what USAID works on because we do our work uh, overseas. And, and our work, I will say, one of the biggest tensions and challenges that we grapple with is we're given fixed resources and not resources that are not keeping up at all with uh, the development setbacks that climate change is causing at all at all, even though they're growing, our resources are growing, but you just, you can't keep up. But the other problem is not just that, it's that so much of our resources go to keeping people alive in emergency circumstances, like those in Libya just over the last week, uh, or those I mentioned in Pakistan or Somalia. And what you wouldn't do to be taking all of that humanitarian assistance and investing it instead in disaster resilient infrastructure or in drought resistant seeds or in those micro loans, uh, you know, to small farmers who are actually capable of using their smartphone to anticipate extreme weather events and at least mitigate what those losses are. So that what I've described is kind of the difference between resilience uh, and emergency, you know, relief. And, and we are very weighted as a as a government and as a donor community writ large toward i mean you know, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing it's a beautiful privilege to try to help people get through the worst moments of their lives but uh in doing it that way which is quite stopgap you know that you're going to be back at it and and that is you know extra heartbreaking because it used to say we'd say climate shock but now it's kind of like is it a shock when it is a predictable feature of, um, you know, a particular part of a country's um, farming life. Um, and, and so what does that require of us? If the pie were bigger, we would dramatically increase our investments in resilience, which is what we should be doing. Uh, it's hard to not save lives in the interest of saving lives in the longer term. So we are, we are balancing this as best we can, but it is, it's not a fun balancing act. You anticipated the question I was going to ask, jumping off the microloans piece. So I'm going to jump ahead. Um, the relationship between economic development and, and climate change. How closely linked are these issues, and how is uh, USAID addressing them both at the same time? Well, I mean, I'd say we are in or we are moving toward let me say because we have a long way to go um embedding attention to climate change as a design feature of all of our work so one sort of structural maybe wonky example of this is that we have taken our food security and resilience bureau 
and merged it with our climate uh, team. And, and so that is where, but the nexus there is quite obvious to people. It's not a perfect overlap, but, but there's tons to be, agriculture is a major source of emissions. So uh, those emissions need to come down. Um, and of course, climate smart agriculture is going to be the way that we preserve food security or in, increase it in the years ahead. So that's one merger. But in terms of education, it's the number one, I mean, all of us, any of us who have kids, it's the number one thing kids want to know about is is not only what's going to happen to to the world that I know, but also what can I do about it? Um, so even thinking about education in governance, it is so fundamentally destabilizing for governments that can't keep up with climate change, whether on the resilience side or on the emergency side, because it compounds this loss of trust in institutions that we see in so many parts of the world. That's not just about you know, the export of surveillance technologies, you know, from the PRC or, um, you know, democratic de democracies being under attack by other, other means. There's also just things that are happening in the world that when a government can't keep up, it compounds that cynicism about institutions. So uh, this is a long way of saying we do governance work at USAID, we do education, we do public health. That's completely connected to climate as you look at changing malaria patterns. The WHO, I think, is is predicting an additional 250,000 people who will have died by by 2030 of climate related, whether it's you know heat stress or or malaria uh, or water shortages, malnutrition that grows out of it. So, what we where we need to get as an agency is to embed uh, attention to resilience and attention to climate change and what it means for a community in everything we do. And and you know. I, in a sense, USAID is a climate agency. Even if we still have a climate team that works, you know, as a climate team per se, mainstreaming this agenda is what our missions are trying to do uh, all around the world. And this is not because I, I anticipate the, you know, the concerns of some maybe in our in our domestic politics on this, and I'm sure you'll get there. But, uh, but you know, this isn't USAID foisting anything. This is the cri de corps you know, heard all around the world of this is a game changer. Our development trajectories were going here, COVID hit, and now we have what could feel like a COVID-like, not, not of the same scale, but battering again and again and again. So just as we're now thinking differently about pandemic prevention, what should that lead us to think about when it, when it comes to embedding climate in the mindset of all public spending and and all notions of mobiliz mobilizing private capital because that's of course going to be a big part of the solution. So we're tra that's it's this mainstreaming and not having climate live over here, but given that it is this game changer and given the that it's the our host countries and the communities in which we work and have worked since John F. Kennedy, pleading you know give us more of the tools to adapt to this shell shocking phenomenon. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. 
Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Phenomenon. Well, I asked the question about economic development because, you know, with economic development comes, you know, perhaps um, better lives, better living conditions, which then can exacerbate um, the, the issues related to climate change. So how do you in, um, and I wrote it down really fast, the mainstreaming, how in mainstreaming climate in, in the things that you do, how do you find that balance between um, helping people help themselves while at the same time not doing it in a way that exacerbate the climate problems that we all have to face? Yeah, and I mean, I think, I think you're, you know, one example that I think that you're alluding to is, you know, as people get richer, they, they buy more meat and that causes, you know, more emissions or they travel more, they're flying more there. And you're you absolutely, I mean, we've seen that that's the emissions trajectory in both the PRC and India are reflected of that. Our emissions trajectory, you know, back as we were um, bringing our economy online and modernizing, it absolutely reflects that. So I think that is profound. I will say the fact that Solar power, um, the cost of solar has come down by 85%. Uh, the cost of wind is down by 55%. Um, where we work, uh, the demand signal for renewables is very, very significant, which doesn't get at mediating and some of the other features of um, getting wealthier. Um, but it does get to the urgency of making clean energy transitions as these prices come down, it is a better bet. And so, so again, when we have these exchanges on the Hill and it look, you know, it looks to some who are skeptical somehow still of, of climate programming, you know, that we're bringing our green agenda to the countries and the communities we're working in. No, it's not like that at all. They're saying we can't afford this other thing, you know, but actually we can pop up a solar panel and have a, a water pump that we've been trying to get in this village. We can go off grid in ways we we never, well, the state's not going to get here anytime soon. This was my experience out in uh, Beka Valley in, in Lebanon, where USAID worked to, to you know, build a, um, a bunch of solar panels that powered electricity and, and, and ended up actually reducing tension between refugees who were being generously sheltered by Lebanese host communities, Syrian refugees, and the Lebanese because they were no longer fighting over water because they had water because they had solar. But to attach to the, the grid... No way. And so then those tensions, who knows what would happen with that. So the idea that these investments are cost effective over time, that actually you can develop in, a, in along the lines of what you're describing in a clean way. I think the other aspects of consumption, um, uh, you know, need to be dealt with as part of civic education and as part of norm um, work because it is true that in many, many societies, and again, including our own back in the day, you know, as you increase your, your livelihoods, your income, consumables are a very attractive way to, to expend those, those new resources. 
this feels like a high class problem <laughs> in most of the countries, you know, we're talking about, I mean, I'm talking about working with small scale farmers who are paying double this year for fertilizer than they were paying before Putin invaded Ukraine, who just need a little loan to be able to get access to some of those drought resistant seeds that are going to increase yields by 25%. But again, finding the resources to get them that, getting the private sector interested in adaptation. Um, but, you know, no question that we should be thinking now about, you know, if we can be successful, if we can help them withstand the negative effects of climate change and like here in America, grow jobs out of also uh, these changes uh, to their economies, then what? Then we will be grappling with the kinds of things that have further fueled emissions in, in more recently developed countries. So as you've alluded to many times, there's a lot of good news related to um, development of clean energy alternatives. That being said though, global emissions once again hit a record high in 2022. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has risen to levels not seen in millions of years. Uh, are we moving in the wrong direction despite glimmers of hope? Well, I mean, I think all of us um, can answer that question in two ways. <laughs> And we talk to ourselves all day, you know, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. Um, but what, what we can say is we're certainly not moving fast enough. And, you know, what breaks my heart is you, it's a little bit like another version of the vicious cycle you were kind of describing. But when you see the, the wildfires and the rate of wildfires and then all of the carbon emitted and all of the good that had been done with carbon emission reductions and that being not washed away, whatever, you know, uh, smoked away, burned away. Um, that's heartbreaking because these investments were, are accreting, they are building momentum. So I think that, and that's not the only thing that's heartbreaking. There's so much that's happening day to day and, and a little bit of the despondency, I think setting in as well as people just open the newspaper and, um, whether it's in their own community or one further afield or even something like what happened in Libya, which just captures the imagination of, uh, which was its own sui generis issue with regard to governance and infrastructure, but was, would not have happened that way, but for the intensity of Storm Daniel, which is, which is just being seen in so many communities. Um, but what I, what I do think it's important to come back to, at least as proof of concept, is that uh, at, in Paris, the projections, they were, we, we the world were on a track to warm four degrees. And we are now on a track to warm 2.5 degrees. So that is a reflection of the agency that people have claimed over this trajectory. The problem is we need to curb warming at 1.5 degrees. But in that delta from four to 2.5, uh, should give people at least, uh, you know, a sense that actually collectively we are doing things that are making a difference. There's no doubt we are doing things that are making a difference. Um, if I could, though, I think the area that we we have, the, I mean, as, as John Kerry likes to say, you know, if we don't get mitigation right and the carbon reductions right, um, there'll be no planet to adapt. Um, he, he makes a comment like that a lot. We, we at USAID are in the mitigation and the adaptation business, as, as is Secretary Kerry and his team. But I, I think in mitigation, what's, what I think gives one hope is just how much the private sector has leapt now 
recognizing that there's money to be made. And, and, you know, I'd love to rely on people's good intentions and their feeling of fellow humanity, but it's much more reliable to, if they think there's money to be made. And that shift has occurred and you see it on the IRA, which is already defying even the, the best projections and, and extrapolations that people did. I mean, this is going to have way more collateral uh, effects and, and bring down carbon way more, I think, than, than people could have just strictly speaking anticipated because of a cascade now of private sector interest fueled and catalyzed uh, by the underlying uh, legislation. And so, too, as the prices come down, again, there's virtuous cycles there. Adaptation, we're not, we're not there yeah, and I don't know if we're 10 years behind where we were on on mitigation, you know, where we are on mitigation. Like, is the same thing going to happen in 10 years where we look back and say, oh, we lost all that time? Why couldn't private sector actors have seen as well that there's good to be done and money to be made, I guess, if, if you have to think that way, around insurance industry in the agricultural sector, um, in fintech, I mean, all these tools are going to be absolutely critical out in particularly rural areas and, and those areas that are most vulnerable to, to climate change. But about 2% of funding to adaptation comes from the private sector right now. And that has just got to change. So President Biden and we have done a big call to action to the private sector, um, but it's, it's, it's slow going. And, and even if you take, forget the specific sectors that have a direct nexus with uh, the need to, to build resilience, look at it in even more stark terms, the market share that so many companies are hoping to capture are themselves going to have less money to spend, maybe in flight, maybe at war. Um, you know, and so the positive of that is, hey, if we can help them adapt and, and be more resilient and where these uh, emergencies happen, but, uh, but don't wallop communities in the same way and they bounce back, uh, that's, those are consumers that will be our consumers. But the negative is what if, you know, millions, tens of millions of consumers are taken offline uh, because they are driven into poverty. The predictions now are 100 million more people driven into extreme poverty by 2030. But that's within our hand. That adaptation, there's so much, as I would say to my kids, there's room to grow. <laughs> you know, the, the areas that are the most troubling in some ways, uh, there's, there's really room to grow. And, and you could see a cascade of the kind that we've seen on, on carbon mitigation. Administrator Power, we have almost, we got a minute and eight seconds. And, and this will be the final question. I mean, the name of this conference is This is Climate, Women Leading the Charge. So how do you see women reshaping climate leadership? Well, first of all, I have the chance to make an announcement here in my one minute and eight seconds uh, that I have 53. left. Fifty-three. Uh, uh, <laughs> we, um, we, USAID and Amazon, the company, not the forest, uh, launched uh, a gender equality fund, gender equity fund at COP. And uh, we launched it with $6 million in funding. And this is for women. It's for uh, projects that will benefit women. It's for projects that are driven by women in adaptation or in mitigation, the whole or protection of natural ecosystems, but things broadly in the climate space. And uh, today uh, we have the Visa Foundation and Reckitts, a, a company out of the United Kingdom, who have joined us and matched that initial, oh, USA put in three million, Amazon put in three million and, and have added uh, six million. Why do I mention this? Not a huge amount of money yet. 
we're going to get up to 60 million, we hope, uh, in rapid order. This is part of another cascade that we would like to see. Um, we've put out a request for proposals. Incredible women leaders are putting uh, proposals in. These can be small uh, projects. A lot of the climate finance right now is not going to small projects. It's going to big international organizations. So working more with local partners is going to be absolutely key. Um, but these are going to be the success stories that are going to inspire people uh, to invest more and to believe that change can come. And it, sadly, there are just not that many examples of climate finance facilities that are targeted and tailored toward women, even though women are bearing the greatest brunt. And women, I think, in my experience, are doing the most innovative work uh, in dealing with the consequences of climate change and try to, to uh, lower those consequences in the years ahead. Samantha Power, the 19th Administrator of USAID, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to K-Part. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan K-Part. You can find me on Twitter at K-Part J. K-Part J.